Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Mara Chiomero, Democratic pollster with GBAOs. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights, here helping Margie <laughs> hold it together. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just looking at the top lines and I just started to laugh. So each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. I tried to check out this past weekend, but the news kept going. It was about this time four years ago that I put the Headspace app on my phone. Not a sponsor of the show. Although, right. Richard, we should approach them. Yes, <laughs> Andy, the British guy who talks to you about uh, meditating, was very helpful at getting me through Super Tuesday and the related moments on the Republican side four years ago. I highly recommend. Yeah, I've I've been trying some mindfulness this year. <laughs> and I don't know if it's... Wor- I mean, it's not not working. I mean, I guess... There's mindfulness and then there's just shutting out things, right? So the primer, it's happening. It's getting a little heated. There's lots of activity on Twitter and in the States. I'm trying to focus on my own practice of resistance. That's There's no app for that. That's just what I'm trying to do. Well, I had a fun polling incident last night that was extremely exciting. I got a phone call from an unknown number, did not pick it up because, of course— And as soon as it went to voicemail, my little like voicemail transcript comes up. And so you can see, I'm going to pull out my phone. I'm going to read this to you so you can understand my joy uh, when I saw this voicemail. So the voicemail was, uh, hi, this is unintelligible, calling from unintelligible. Sorry I missed you, but you could still share opinions for our research survey by calling phone number. Thanks for your help. We look forward. And I was like, I'm calling. Who is this and what's the survey? Let's do it. That's good. It's legit. It's one of the universities who we talk about their polls on this show all the time. Right. So one of the 10 or so, five to 10. Siena, Quinnipiac, Marist, Suffolk, Monmouth. Mm -hmm. Like it's one of those. I'm not going to call out specifically which one. Although my experience was lovely. Talked to a nice student. There was no screener for if you are a pollster or a media person, you can't take this poll. But what at the about, end of the survey, I do felt you host a obligated to disclose. <laughs> like, like I called Did the interviewer, say, "Oh my God, you sounds like Kristen from the pollsters." Has anybody ever told you that? <laughs> I'm sure this lovely student gal is doing this as like work my study class. to you know, <laughs> so she can avoid having loans. It was it was a survey all about healthcare and. Healthcare comparing the U.S. to other countries. It was a very interesting survey. Interviewer gal talked a little fast. I had to ask for her to repeat a sure. couple of questions, yep. but that it was totally fine. It was. I think they asked me a lot of questions in a very short amount of time. I did not feel my time was wasted. And at the end, I was like, I complimented the interviewer, and I right. disclosed that I am a pollster. And I said, if you have to, like, dis- if you have to throw out my interview, I totally understand. And that's she's like, good. I think we're okay. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but if you are one of the directors of one of these university pollsters, now are you going to be like searching through your data set for like, <laughs> where's my conservative we, female respondent in DC? In DC, <laughs> right? We found one Republican woman in Washington. Okay, <laughs> that must be her. I had this different thing happen to me, which is I had this nightmare that I was I was supposed to. 
go do focus groups in Antarctica, and I was like at the store, like I don't have anything to wear for my focus groups <laughs> in Antarctica. Like I don't have the right clothes. I have to have what? Like do I have to wear for like moderating is different than being outside. Like I was just really stressed about it. And then I woke up. I'm like, oh thank goodness, I am just going to battleground this midwestern state. No, you're going somewhere flight. where you can wear MM Lafleur to moderate That's your true. focus group. <laughs> Actually, I don't think I was I was not even moderating. I was in the back room, so I could wear whatever I wanted. I could wear oh. ball gown, gym shorts, whatever. So neither of those. But I did not have to go to Antarctica. I had a place that had many daily flights, so it was totally fine. Well, congratulations. <laughs> so wasn't quite as bad as my nightmares. But speaking of nightmares, what is happening? <laughs> the top lines. It's actual monster truck mania on the Democratic side. <laughs> Everyone has decided to stop being nice and start being real. We'll talk a little bit about revealed versus stated preferences. What people say they want in a president is not matching up with who they appear to be voting for. Yes. Um, Trump job approval is still at its high watermark. Although we have a lot of 2020 matchups that tell some very different stories about where the general election might be headed. Plus drama over NBC Wall Street Journal's decision to swap out the Warren Trump matchup with the Klobuchar Trump matchup. Drama, drama. Yes. We'll discuss. Uh, forget fake news. What about fake respondents? Pew has a nerd alert uh, study all about bogus respondents and opt-in polls. We will discuss our experiences trying to keep the fakers out of our surveys. Yeah. Uh, and finally, <laughs> throwing frozen chickens. <laughs> I don't know. That was the best we'll, I could do. We'll, when we get there, we'll see what that is. There's no holiday. That was the best. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to find out what well, it is. is it, wait. Uh, no. President's Day was last week. Yeah, but we George had... Washington's birthday and this gal's birthday. Oh, yes. Your birthday is coming Saturday. up. Saturday. There's no but public fro- poll Frozen yet, chickens is totally fine as a topic for that. <laughs> that what are you going to do for your birthday? It's just throw frozen chickens. I'm The day after my birthday, I have set aside four hours to Katmari in my basement, and I'm so excited. That is, I am living for throwing out crap from my basement. That's going to be so nice. So speaking of, uh, speaking of throwing out crap... I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trying no, to... No. <laughs> you mean our incredibly strong bench of candidates and with real interesting policy debates? Yes, we have a debate no, tonight. No, that was not what I was <laughs> implying. Um, so we have, you know, we have a debate tonight. Obviously, there's a lot of polling that is getting very volatile with the rise of Bloomberg, with Biden's numbers dropping, Sanders increasing. Buttigieg increasing, Klobuchar increasing. Warren's move dropped some, but not perhaps as dramatically as some of the press reports or back and forth would tell a different story. And this is just in the national tracker. The states show different stories depending on who's uh, who's up in the air in different states. And and this will, tonight will be – we're recording on Wednesday. Tonight will be the first debate that Bloomberg has been uh, part of. So that's the backdrop of what's going on in uh, the primary polling. And I think the, you know a question – and you see some of this reflected in the discussion of the coverage, the discussion of the polls, what's in the polls – how the polls talk about the different candidates is how much, and this is a hard thing to really, you know, be able to tease apart, how much is the vote driven by what the press is saying 
is happening. If you live in an early primary state or early caucus state, that's one thing because you have different set of television ads, you have a different set of ground game, you're paying closer attention, you're more likely to to think, okay, it's time for me to make up my mind, so I'm going to really focus on the candidates, et cetera. But if you are not in one of those states, then who are the folks who have moved from Biden to Bloomberg or from, you know, somebody who's dropped out to Pete Buttigieg or what have you? Like, how are those decisions getting made? Are they getting made by what the news coverage is saying? Yeah, it, I mean, the, the real benefit of winning an early state like Iowa or New Hampshire is not that they are troves of massive amounts of delegates. It's that you're supposed to get some kind of a boost that, oh, look, you've put a W on the board. You you won something. That's great. And you're supposed to get some momentum. But this whole race has been so squirrely. One, because Iowa was like, do we even still know who won? I think I saw on Twitter, an obviously accurate source of news, that now Buttigieg's delegate lead has been shrunken to like four thousandths of a percent. I don't even know how you get four thousandths of a delegate, but again, saw it on Twitter. Obviously, must be accurate. I don't. I don't know. But like, then you go to New Hampshire, and you have Sanders. You have Buttigieg do quite well, but like, Buttigieg is not really benefiting too much in national polls because you have the Bloomberg buzzsaw slashing everybody left and right and preventing anybody from getting any more momentum because he's just so dominating the airwaves and everything with his money. Buttigieg Sanders separated by thousandths of a point. So I don't know if it's thousandths. Yeah, like microscopic. delegate equivalent. Microscopic. Um, Anyway, um, yeah, so, you you know, you see some of this in the press coverage. And how do we, you know, how does the press know what to talk about? Are they talking about and which candidates to highlight? Are they talking about who won or exceeded expectations in the first two states? Or are they using things like what is in, you know, are they looking at just the horse race and that's it? They're mirroring, they're just talking to each other. The national horse race bowling and the press are just sort of mirroring each other. Or is it some of these questions like the NBC Wall Street Journal poll where they ask questions like, would you be excited or feel comfortable or enthusiastic or have reservations about folks from a different variety of backgrounds? Those are asked in hypothetical, although some people may know who the hypothetical is referring to. Some people may not. I know you had some thoughts about like real versus stated preferences, well, yeah, right? Because some of these things are, are interesting because you would not – I mean, there was one thing that I saw some folks talking about like, OK, well, the poll just has – a woman, it doesn't say a man, it doesn't ask if you would feel comfortable or enthusiastic with a man, for example, as one edit to this list. And the other thing is like a candidate who's had a heart attack. That's an interesting thing to have on a list. Well, considering that we have a candidate who did and another candidate who it was alleged on CNN this morning incorrectly. I know. I know. By the press, whatever. I know. <laughs> I'm so sorry that I'm just sitting back watching all of this like... Oh, my God, I remember this. I remember these feelings. Uh, Yeah, so this is fascinating because you find in these polls people saying, I don't want a socialist, I don't want someone with a heart attack in the last year, and I don't want someone who's older than 75. And then you look at who is the top of the polls. And it is the difference between what people say they want and then what their behavior tells them they want. So another example of this that has nothing to do with 2020 is I did some research a few years ago on what people, what do they trust or like about the news and what do they dislike about, you know, the current media culture. And the top thing people say they dislike is like 
clickbait. I don't like, you know, this stuff that's like sensationalized. I just like just the facts, ma'am. I want just the facts, ma'am. Well, I am sure that people's actual internet behavior tells a very different right. story. So your stated preference is like, I would very much like to eat my broccoli and read that long form article about economic development in China. And our actual behavior is, oh my gosh, you'll never believe what this cat did. <laughs> Click. And so yes. not that uh, voting for a 70-something-year-old socialist who had heart attack is oh my god look what this cat did click wait what did I'm the not, cat do <laughs> i'm not i'm not necessarily implying that right i'm not necessarily not implying that no i i but that, that's my whole point well so i think though it is important we don't know from the results here which is are they actually the same people are the are there people who say i don't want someone with these characteristics but they are voting for the person with those characteristics right and how can we tease apart this list, which is pegged to real people. It's not a list of just random things, right? You know, woman, someone's gay or lesbian, age under 40, socialist, self-funds, et cetera. These are meant to approximate real or to simulate people in the race, right? So if it was a whole list of, you know, different kinds of bio points and you did not know who any of the candidates in the field were yet. It was kind of early in the cycle or we were asking about some other time down the road and we had a whole bunch of new bio points. And maybe you could say like, oh, people do not. This is something that they're not as excited about. Right. And then the third challenge with these kinds of questions is, well, this, is this the only way that people are making their decision? Right. I mean, people may decide, OK, I've, I may not like this, but I'm going to do go, you know, I'm going to vote for them anyway because of something else. Or, you know, I really like this about them, but I actually don't like their position on X issue, which is not in this list. So that's why I'm not voting for this person. Yeah. you. I mean, there very well could be, on the one hand, somebody who is, let's say, a never Trumpy friend of mine who has been texting me recently like, oh, my God, am I going to have to vote for Bernie Sanders? I'm like, you can write in Tim Tebow. That is remains an option that is available to you, dude. But he is somebody who I'm sure in a poll like this would say, I am very uncomfortable with having a socialist president. And yet, given the choices on offer and the way he feels about the incumbent president, he would pick Bernie over Trump. Meanwhile, I'm sure there are also people who are like, I do, would prefer not to have a president who is 75 years old. But in a Trump versus Bloomberg general election matchup, you don't really have a choice. They're both over 75. So, you know, it's I don't want to like overstate the amount to which it sort of makes me chuckle that the things people say are the least popular attributes are also the ones that are the most reflected in who the front runners are. Um, but it's it, people say they want one thing, but sometimes their behavior suggests another. Right, right. So what do people want in Nevada? Well, you know, currently Sanders is in the lead. There were a couple polls that came out recently, you know, with the rest of the field, you know, or, or some of the folks in the rest of the field vying for a second and third place. I think a challenge in Nevada has always been you know, it's true in a lot of, I mean, obviously polling in a primary or in a caucus is challenging to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, Nevada's population, you know, is very cell phone dependent. Are you translating the interviews, you know, the language into the survey into Spanish? Are you reaching people at different hours of the day? You know, there's all kinds of different considerations in terms of making sure your Nevada poll is accurate. There are some pretty massive 
age differences here, which is consistent to you know what we've seen elsewhere with um, Sanders really doing quite well with people under 45. He's got 64 percent of the vote with people under 45, with the vote really divided almost evenly between the whole field among over 45. So, I mean, real massive difference by age there. Folks who are uh, Latinx, two-thirds are with Sanders, while uh, white voters are, are all a little bit more spread out. So we'll see. And then, you know, the other thing, and we can talk, I mean, this is sort of taps into kind of the broader thing that's happening in, in at least folks on the left and on Twitter and how people are talking about the race, which is the sense that there's something divisive going on. And so there is fave unfave. This is a data for progress poll that shows that, you know, with caucus goers, people are favorable toward almost all of these candidates. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard continues to be the one that, you know, has the most unfave compared to the rest of the field. Yeah, I think the thing that Bernie Sanders has going for him is that he does not just have, I mean, I think that the thought was, oh, is his support just young people or is it just like young people in states that are predominantly white? And so if he can pull off a win in the Nevada caucus, uh, which I believe Hillary Clinton won last time around. So it's not as though you can say, oh, well, this is the type of state that Bernie Sanders won last time. He didn't win it last time. That's good news for him. Now, Super Tuesday is just around the corner, and it is the sort of place where Bloomberg is going to try to fight back against him. And if all of the other candidates are still in the field, which they probably should be, I wouldn't, even if you don't get top three in either of the next two contests, why would you drop out before Super Tuesday? It's going to be wild. Also, thinking about 16 versus 20, remember that a lot of states that had caucuses last time now have primaries. So Iowa and Nevada kept their caucuses, but most other states have have changed. I think every other state has changed from a caucus. I mean, some have different, some sort of like different way of doing things, but they have moved to a primary, like a primary way of doing it, which is a little bit different than 16 where Sanders did well in caucus states. And so lots of those caucus states changed and the calendar changed. So like the Super Tuesday is like super duper extra Super Tuesday now compared to last time. So it's not completely, not that anything like 16 is now the same <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> it feels pretty the same. <laughs> no. It's not. I feel like I've seen this movie, Margie. It's not the same. Um, but anyway. Don't run up the stairs. It never runs good for the person who runs up the stairs. Run out the back of the house. I've seen the movie. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Let's talk about South Carolina. The calendar is different as well. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's fine. Um, yeah, South Carolina. It's Carol- good to be back in the studio. <laughs> no, it is fine that we're in the studio. I, has there been a new poll? I guess there was a new poll in South Carolina. It's not looking as good for Biden. But no. Bloomberg continues to be included in some of these polls, and he's not a candidate in South Carolina. If I'm not mistaken, he is not on the ballot, right? I feel like I saw this pop across my feed was like there was a poll going around that had Bloomberg at like something percent in South Carolina and the you know our various friends of the show were like wait a second why would you put him as a stated option if he's not going to be on the ballot yeah I mean people can write him in but then you just got to let him you're correct be volunteered so right just something to keep in mind there that even though in the polling average Bloomberg is at 9.5 percent in South Carolina He's not going to get 9.5% in South Carolina. 
Right. Most I mean, like, unless a bunch of people write them in. Right, right, right. I mean, what is interesting in – so there's been a couple polls in from Super Tuesday states. I mean, so, the, you know, moving already from uh, Nevada and South Carolina. And what was interesting from them is this poll in California. And they asked this question that I have not seen. I don't think we've seen it. Maybe it's been asked, but I haven't seen it anywhere, which is when do you think the Democratic Party will know who the party's 2020 nominee will be? And a plurality said not until the middle of the convention. In my dreams. (laughs) I mean, that's... Anyway, that's interesting. (laughs) I feel like it could be sooner than that. It could be sooner than that. But what is the what are the results of that question tell us about what voters think? Do they just is it like I don't know. So they've been listening to people like me wish cast. (laughs) They've been like listening to me and all the other political. I mean, is it just Yes, give us a contested convention. I mean, it's just to it's just to like you know we we don't know, so it must be the middle of the convention. I don't know, or is it maybe I'm now overreading it? Like, when do you think the party will know who it is? Well, technically, it becomes a thing in the during the convention. Like, a bit, so that's probably not it. It's probably just like throwing up their hands kind of answer to yeah. the question. But I like these other like eleven percent say June, like just you know some other month between when all the voting happens and uh, and the convention. Okay, well let's take a break and then we can talk about what Gallup says we're supposed to feel about all of this. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups, it would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, so we're back. And so Gallup has not read the room because they had a headline that says, Americans feel generally upbeat about the election. That is not what I find in any of my focus groups, <laughs> Republican or Democrat. No, no. <laughs> it's quite a funny thing. I mean, the way they ask these questions, I guess it does sound – I could see why they would come to this conclusion. So they ask this question, does it make a real difference to you who was elected president or not? And people say yes, overwhelmingly. Is there a candidate running who you think would make a good president or not? Most say yes. OK, that's good. Do you have a good idea about what one presidential candidate stands for or not? 74% say yes, but like most people. Do you feel any of the candidates has come up with good ideas? Well, then it starts to drop a little bit to two-thirds. Are they talking about issues you care about? Drops a little bit further. And then the one where they're like, no, not really, is does the way the campaign is being conducted make you feel as though the election process is working as it should or not? Yes. This brings to mind another uh stated versus revealed preferences 
situation, which is like one of the things people will complain about a lot regarding campaigns is I hate political ads and I wish there was money not in politics and that rich people didn't control the system. And then there's Mike Bloomberg. (laughs) And suddenly a whole lot of people who would normally really complain about money in politics and rich people having too much control and, oh, my gosh, I hate all these ads on the air. Suddenly it's okay. He's now surging. Well, the debate hasn't happened yet. This is going to air after the debate. I don't want to go too far out on my the Bloomberg limb, but well, I don't. I don't know if that's any of that is really baked into that question. This. Sure, it just reminds me of another where like people say they want one thing, but then their behavior tells a different story. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if people were just sort of like putting together a collage to think of the focus group tableau for a moment and they had to come up with like you know okay here take all these magazines and put together your idea of what the ideal candidate would look like probably Mm -hmm. wouldn't look like donald trump either right Right. um so put aside the democratic primary for a moment it wouldn't look like donald trump so you know so it's hard for people to i mean they they are introduced to candidates and then retrofit their their views but this majority that feel that the election process is not working as it should is actually pretty stable in its negativity i suppose it's been similar for 12 and 16 so i don't know maybe that's i don't know if that's good news or not well, <laughs> that's the same bad, unchanged bad news. Yeah, I mean, in the on the, this other question of how much confidence do you have in each of the following or not? How about the honesty of elections? Uh, people in Finland, Norway, Sweden, Luxembourg, my beloved New Zealand, these countries all have large majorities of people who say they feel confident in the honesty of the elections. The United States of America is toward the bottom of the OECD countries. We are below Hungary, Belgium, South Korea. And Estonia, we are above Lithuania, Turkey, Latvia, Chile, and Mexico, but only 40% of Americans say they trust the honesty of elections. 59% say they don't. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean people think that like ballot boxes are being stuffed, so much as this could be generalized worries about voter fraud, worries about voter suppression, worries about honesty politicians aren't honest. Right. They're lying in their campaign ads. It could, you know, lots of things could be going on there. Right. But. Yeah. With this backdrop, Trump's numbers are, I guess, the same in terms of his approval, maybe up a hair. Yeah, I think I saw Nate Cohn tweet this morning, Wednesday morning, that this was like the highest he'd been in their upshot averages for him, which, again, in historical context, the numbers aren't great. For Trump context, they're, they're great. His high watermark. But if you look at general election polling, the... Story is a little is less rosy, but also depends on which poll you're trusting. So ABC News, Washington Post tested six different head to heads, Trump versus Sanders, Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Klobuchar and Warren. Each of those candidates is ahead of Trump. Um, Biden performs the best. Warren performs the the worst. But all of them are still ahead of Trump or are fairly close. Emerson has a much more favorable view of Trump's chances. They have Trump beating everybody but Sanders. NPR, PBS Marist has all of the candidates beating Trump by some modest margin that is similar to the margin Hillary Clinton won by in the popular vote in 2016. And then Wall Street Journal actually only asks five head-to-head matchups. So NPR Marist asks all six. ABC News Washington Post asks all six. 
NBC only asked five, and they took a little blowback Ooh, for this on Twitter. Yeah, um, because they had to. They swapped out Warren for Klobuchar. Right. Which I get wanting to test Klobuchar, and I get that questionnaire space is at a premium. So, yeah, so Peter Hart was quoted in, I think, BuzzFeed um, and said, well, we just, you know, we did it for space and, you know, we had Klobuchar. And it's true that there haven't been a lot of Klobuchar head-to-heads. We've talked about this before. I mean, it wasn't until recently that there were any. I mean, there were barely any at all. And going back to ancient times when there were 20 candidates or 25 candidates and it was very difficult to figure out how do you ask the general election head-to-heads, how do you figure out the primary, how do you have these long ballot tests, like all these different ways, things about the the horse race that were encroaching on, you know, survey space and just made it difficult. Like what would have happened, for example, if one of these outlets had like 10, 12, 15 ballot tests and showed what the head-to-head would be with, you know, Steve Bullock, or for example, or Andrew Yang, or you know, different candidates. What would have happened if we saw ballot tests that showed Trump was losing to every single like of the twenty candidates who were, uh, you know, on this debate stage at some point or another? Um, anyway, but I digress. I understand why it's not just for survey space; it's also respondent fatigue. Um, so, you know, you could have a larger sample size and then not everybody gets every single head ballot test or whatever. So there's a variety of things you could do about that. It's not simply, well, we had to make space for these other questions so we could only, you know, do this many. It's because people get sort of worn down by having that many different ballots and you would rotate them. But anyway, we I digress from all of that. I think the difference between five and six, however, here is important. And if you are getting a primary poll question, if you've made it to the part where you're, you know, well, I guess not primary, it's general, but still, I think, you know, I think the difference between five and six is is negligible ultimately and important in terms of the buy-in from folks who are going to get it. But I, I, I get why they had to Yeah, I, I did think some of the online backlash, I, like one of the tweets that uh, was getting circulated was like, of somebody flagged it, they were like, this is like, it was, they called it sinful or something. It's like, um... I mean, it's a method. It's a questionnaire choice I wouldn't have made, but I don't think that it's like. uh, But and it's like a team effort. It's not like one person made this decision and said, you know, haha, I'm going to cut this person. I mean, it's a team effort that involved, I'm sure, like six, seven people at least who Mm -hmm. were involved. At least who were involved, and so they probably just, you know, just tried to think about the relative news value relative to all the other things they wanted to test. And, you know, that's the challenge with these with these questions and also the challenge of like, okay, well, what does this mean about the coverage? They also had a ballot test in that poll, a primary ballot test that showed Warren strong, still, you know, top three and four, I think. So she's still in the poll and she still, you know, shows her strength. And I think for the folks who are upset about it, I appreciate why that's troubling on the heels of getting her speech cut off, I think, during Iowa and not aired at all in New Hampshire. Maybe I have those reversed. But there was, you know, the way her speeches were treated and from the first two contests, in addition to this, is like, you know, it makes people feel like, okay, well, there's there's something happening here where people are writing her off really before there's there's really a lot of voting. So and without the polling to really back up that decision making. Mm-hmm. Well, Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about this nerd alert bogus respondent stuff because yes. this is a really cool methodological discussion and I'm yes. excited to have it. So we will be right back. 
Okay, let's talk bogus respondents. So this week, the Pew Research Center put out a big study assessing the risks to online polls from bogus respondents. Now, there are a ton of polls nowadays that lean on uh, opt-in polling that is done online. Now, this does not necessarily, we're not talking about like the garbage polls we throw in at the end of the show that like appear on some local news website and like, click here. Do you Viewer prefer engagement tools. pizza or Doritos? Yeah. You know, not not that. <laughs> um, but, but lots of these panels where anyone can sign up to be a part of the you know, panel X, Y, or Z. Right. It doesn't mean you'll get picked for every survey. And theoretically, the samples are being drawn randomly from the large pool of people. But that pool of people has opted in. Right. There are only one or two online panel vendors where you cannot just join. You have to be invited. It's an exclusive club. And they're very expensive to use. And you don't tend to see a ton. Bespoke survey panels. Bespoke survey panels. And so you've got to figure out, you know, are these people legit? So one way that you can do this, like at Echelon, something that we do is we, whenever possible, we try to do a voter file matched sample Mm -hmm. so that the people you're talking to, you theoretically know they have been verified as like, hey, we are, I am Susie Smith and I live at this address. And we can go, great, I know that you voted in the 2012 primary. And Patrick goes, uh, yes, I remember that person from his memorization yes, that of is the entire voter file. Usually exactly <laughs> how it goes. But bogus respondents are a real thing. Right. We had a survey early on in when we began noodling with this where we noticed an, a very high percentage of very conservative men who – were very favorable to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah. We talked about it on the show. I was, I was like, like, no, I know what that's about. That's yeah. not, they're not bots. <laughs> <laughs> they're not bots. They're real people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like that was my first time going like, oh, also if you were taking our survey and you were just checking the first box on everything and it wasn't rotating, although it was supposed to be rotating, but like you could be, right. you know, for whatever reason the rotate wasn't working or something or someone had not programmed it in, that could lead to that. Or people just trying to troll you and pick weird stuff could cause that. Or young they conservative like kid men really like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> They've been served so much content about her. They were like, entirely possible. She's the lady I like. <laughs> <laughs> but what what Pew wanted to do was figure out bogus respondents, which they define as someone who takes a survey multiple times, someone who reports living outside the United States if the target population is U.S. adults, um, someone who gives multiple non sequitur, open ended answers, or someone who says they approve or favor. Everything in the poll, regardless of what is asked. And it said they say the study finds that not all online polls suffer from this problem. Online polls that recruit participants offline through random sampling. These are the like, come join my exclusive panel clubs. There are too few bogus cases to have a perceptible estimate. So but this study compares data from six online sources used for public polling, three prominent sources of opt-in survey panels, two marketplaces and one panel. A crowdsourcing platform, I'm super curious what the crowdsourcing platform is, and two survey panels that are recruited offline using national random samples. I am assuming those two are GFK, Knowledge Networks, and I don't know who the other one is. I think GFK and Knowledge Networks had been separate, but then they worked together. Mm-hmm. I don't know who, who the two players are in that space. But they find that, that in the opt-in panels, about 6% of all respondents, they classified as bogus like you could go through and in with a rigorous data cleaning process figure out something was up with six percent of those people right which as we saw with the whole iowa 
Des Moines Register, an interviewer has the screen font turned up too much. Like any survey is going to have a little bit of messiness going on around the edges. Things happen, right. But if you are using a poll to determine, I don't know, who qualifies for debates and a difference between two and three percent means you're in or you're out. And these polls have on average six percent of respondents are bogus. That could make a big difference. That could make a big difference. Right. So they looked at so not just the percent of that look like bogus respondents, but what are the best ways to catch them? So they have a couple different ways to catch them. One is a trap question. So asking people a question like, okay, click here, right, or say both or say yes in the next question or some sort of trap question to look to see if people are paying attention. It's an attention check. Or is it a speed test? Are they just racing through the survey? You know, it's to make sure that people aren't just zooming through the survey. And you can do that with the design, too. And you can do that just because you know how long the advantage of, well, it's true with phone surveys, too. You can see how long the survey took. And so if someone takes two minutes for a 20-minute survey, you know that that they did something, that they're, they weren't really reading everything properly or using both. And, you know, those different checks don't catch all of the bogus respondents. They catch some, you know, folks living outside. But they felt, Pew felt that the, you know, outside the U.S., but Pew felt the best way to catch people, catch bogus respondents, was asking an open end and seeing what people said. And so they haven't, the question that they used was, would you like to see elected leaders in Washington get, what would you like them to see get done in the next few years? Give as much detail as you can. And it elicited twice as many plagiarized answers as uh, as the question eliciting the second most. Like that was the one that really like, that's where you could tell people were kind of bogus respondents. And it doesn't mean that they were bots or not real people. If they were real people, they were just trying to race through the, you know, they were just like, they weren't really paying attention to the survey. So bogus can mean, you could be bogus in all kinds of different ways. Mm -hmm. Bogus doesn't mean like you don't actually exist. Um, So you could be voter file match, for example, and still be bogus. And so so two thirds of of the plagiarized answers were snippets of various biographies of George Washington, which I, you know, I guess they just like went to Wikipedia or something and, and clip something and, and put it in the open inbox. And that's how you could tell that they were not really responding what their actual thoughts were. Yeah. You know, the, you can do things like in every echelon poll, we now have a trap question, which yep. basically just says, please check somewhat unfavorable yes. on this one. And so yes. if somebody's just racing through and just checking yes, 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 yes on everything, you will fail that question and you will be booted. Right. But... You can be still barely paying attention, notice that one, get it right, and then still be right mowing your way through the rest right, of it. Right, exactly. And so if it's not catching all the bogus folks, then maybe it's, you know, the main thing that you should be doing is, a, you know, is an open end. An open end that asks people to provide something really specific, not an open end that has people do like, you know, ask people like yes or no or I feel pretty good about that, right? You want to give them – a question where they have to really provide some details so you know and mask it in such a way that they aren't they're not sure what the question is trying to do. They don't know you're trying to yeah. catch them. So I think that's really interesting. And then I like their one of their final questions as they wrapped up the report. Do changes of two or three percentage points really matter? <laughs> like does this really matter? <laughs> and their answer to that is, well, you know, it can matter for some of these things. And, you know, maybe 
on some polls, the difference between two or three is not mission critical. But their point is on some things it really matters greatly. And, and also the overall sense that polling, you know, does it degrade trust in polls broadly? And if it does, then that two to three percent really does matter. And, you know, we do some of the same things that are in here that you've been talking about. In fact, uh, when I sent around this article to the folks in my office, they're like, that's great because we are having our meeting today about our online checks and online met- survey methodology. So like there's a meeting right now talking about these things that was already scheduled that this yeah. came out just in time for. So, you know, so it's really, I mean, what's good about this is obviously we talk about polls that give greater understanding of like what people think about healthcare, what people think about taxes. But this is actually real methodological guidance that is important. It's not about public opinion. It's about how to make our surveys better. And online is really different than phones. And so you have you don't have to do this um, on the phone. <laughs> you know, people are people are you know they're listening. You know, you know that they're hearing it. So it is um, it is something that is important to adapt to. The nice gal from university name redacted. Uh, did confirm last night that I was not operating a motor vehicle or doing anything where it would be dangerous for me to be taking the survey. She did confirm that. I was That's standing good. in my kitchen, so I was not in a dangerous I'm place. wielding a knife. Yes. <laughs> um, what I, the, I think the important, biggest and most important takeaway, though, is at the end of this pew thing, it says, does this study mean the polls are wrong? And it says, no. While some of the findings are concerning, they do not signal that polling writ large is broken, wrong, or untrustworthy, as the 2018 midterm and even national-level polling from the 2016 election demonstrated. <laughs> oh, I feel I feel sympathy with this defensiveness because <laughs> I've had to make that case so many times. Uh, well-designed polls still provide accurate, useful information. As far as online polls, the ones that use offline random sampling performed very well. Only trace levels of bogus respondents. Panels and marketplaces that use opt-in sourcing, they showed higher levels of untrustworthy data, but the levels were still low. And so the big takeaway is not you should ignore these polls. Rather, these are things that everyone in the industry needs to be watching for and trying to come up with solutions to address and to monitor to make sure they don't get worse. Can we talk about chicken chucking? <laughs> That's uh, why I'm here. Yes. Let's talk chicken chucking. Um, so God. in the thorough. All right. So, you know, we were just trying to figure out what was going to be fun. Or what could we put here? And it was hard. And so I just searched for poll fun. And this came up pretty early on from the Thorold News. Thorold is a town in Ontario, the Ontario portion of Canada. So it's not that far from Buffalo, honestly. And they're under fire at the Kilton Clover because they activists were upset because they had an international chicken chucking championship <laughs> and where they would throw frozen chickens on the ice, like a frozen lake. And it got a story got a lot of attention. The bar says it's a lighthearted day for regulars. This is a bar that does the annual chicken chucking competition. And so then the local paper did a poll. Is chicken chucking harmless fun or disrespectful to animals? Yes, it is disrespectful and the event should be stopped. Exclamation point. No, I don't see the harm in throwing frozen chickens onto the ice. And... There are about 700 votes in this poll, which is probably more than I would have expected. And uh, most of them overwhelmingly said, yes, it's disrespectful and it should be stopped. But the other important thing is there is a poll about the poll (laughs) at the bottom of the page. How did this story make you feel? (laughs) 
happy, amused, afraid, don't care, sad, frustrated, angry, with various emojis yes. to correspond, which I actually kind of love. I know. I love it, too. I find uh, it very soothing for 57% of people reason. said this poll made them angry. I voted that that story made me happy. <laughs> I would argue... That chicken chucking, <laughs> even if you approve of it, does not strike me as harmless fun because I would be concerned about the salmonella going on. Yes. Are, I, I am assuming these frozen chickens are not still wrapped in packaging. I mean, maybe they are. They look like they are in plastic bags. Oh, okay. Because I went Great. to the well, full my story. My food safety concerns have been addressed. Contestants, usually sporting colorful team attire, are coming from as far as Washington, D.C. to participate in the championship. (laughs) They have to pay $35. It's a double-bagged frozen chicken, so you're okay. What a time to be alive. (laughs) Margie, what did we learn this week? I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm going to be thinking about this for a while. Okay. I'm not sure. Mostly upbeat is the phrase I use right now. So Gallup, read the room. And can I click through 2020 as fast as possible, like a bogus respondent? I Um, assure you, you cannot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, if all else, I will not take up chicken chucking. I just enjoy the story about it. Mindfulness, highly recommend. You can find us on Twitter at at the pollsters, individually at at Margie O'Meara and at Kay Soltis Anderson on Facebook and at www.thepolsters.com. Thanks, bye.